If you will, please open up in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 7. Told the elders as we prayed this morning about to elders, deacons, and interns about to read and preach from the longest section I've ever read in my life. If you read it ahead in advance, uh, you know the task that is before us and, and why your minister appreciates being prayed for. Uh, so please stand together as we give our attention to God's holy and inspired word for the grass withers, the flower fades away, but the word of God will endure forever. So let's strive to hear and heed. His word faithfully together. Nehemiah chapter 7, beginning at verse 5. Then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came as Rubbable, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramia, Nahamami, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvi, Nahum, Bana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Ara, 652. The sons of Pahath, Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2818. The sons of Elam, 1254, the sons of Zatu, 845, the sons of Zakai, 760, the sons of Benui, 648, the sons of Babai, 628, the sons of Osgod, 2322, the sons of Adonikam, 667, the sons of Bigvi, 2067, the sons of Aden, 655, the sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Hashum, 328, the sons of Betsai, 324, the sons of Harif, 112, the sons of Gibeon, 95, the men of Bethlehem and Nedipha, 188, the men of Anathoth, 128, the men of Beth Azmeth, 42, the men of Kiriath Jerem, Chephira and Biroth, 743, the men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmash, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1254. The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadad, and Anno, 721. The sons of Sanaa, 3930. The priests, the sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1052, the sons of Pashur, 1247, the sons of Harim, 1017, the Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Cadmiel, the sons of Hadova, the singers, the sons of Asaph, 148, the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atur, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shaboy, 138, the temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Taboath, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Rea, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gatsum, the sons of Utsah, the sons of Pasea, the sons of Besai, the sons of Menuhim, the sons of Nefushim, close enough, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Bozleth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, 
The sons of Barkas, the sons of Sezura, the sons of Timah, the sons of Netziah, the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Satai, the sons of Sosphereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pachareth, Hahezabim, the sons of Ammon, all the temple servants, and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following of those who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, and their mules 245. Their camels 435, and their donkeys 6720. Now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 50 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants in all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. It's so obvious, O Lord, how much we need your help, not simply to read your word, but to rightly understand it, believe it, and then to appropriately apply it to our lives. And so we pray for that spirit that inspired these words and preserves these words to now work through the reading and especially the preaching of your word that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit would receive glory and honor in the church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There are some places in the world where it greatly matters to the people of that place where you are from and to whom you are related. Uh, Most of you know I grew up in North Carolina and spent quite a bit of time in Florida and in the South. It matters an awful lot where you are from and to whom you might be related. There's a certain measure of cultural pride, uh, let alone uh, certain uh, blessings that seem to come along with that. Uh, In the Midwest, it seems to matter quite a bit. My son and I were there recently, and nearly every other person you meet wants to play this fun little game called Dutch Bingo. No one laughed at that. None. Not a single one. It's okay. Uh, But Dutch Bingo is where you try to figure out who you know, who you're connected to, and and, in some small way, uh, that matters. Uh, Such things don't matter so much here in Southern California, where people lack the long lines of descent like you might see in the South and in the Midwest. But it does matter in our text today, where one's origin, both people and place, 
are particularly important. That is the theme of the chapter, and we'll try to work through it and understand it uh, through the three points that you have there in your outline. The first of which is God's gift of his people. If you look carefully at the outline, I changed mainly the three words there in the middle. So God's gift of his people. The text before us comes with at least one particular challenge, if not uh, several. And one of the striking challenges that we have here is that we have been here before. This super long list of names, this uh, chapter containing uh, 73 verses is not only a super long list of names, this list of names, if you remember from when we were in the book of Ezra, is the same list as given in Ezra chapter 2. So there are a couple of things here that I'm, I'm sort of counting on this morning. I'm grateful for those of you who are new and can't remember Ezra chapter 2. And I'm grateful for those of you who've been here for a while and are old, and yet you still can't remember <laughs> Ezra chapter 2. As Derek Thomas puts it in his commentary on this book, what lies before us is a Herculean task, not only of pronunciation, but also of perseverance. And, and I will admit, uh, I, was, I was briefly tempted to allow one of our interns to read the text, uh, simply wondering how much stamina I would have at the end and if I would, I, if I would literally uh, need to sit down and take a break for a moment. But it has been uh, my habit over the years uh, to read what I preach and even to translate it. So here's 14 pages of Hebrew, which equals Ezra chapter, or Nehemiah chapter 7. Uh, but as you know from the Westminster Confession of Faith, not all scripture alike is easily uh, understood, at least quite the same way. Uh, but it is all God's word. Nehemiah chapter 7, that gigantic list of names that we just struggled our way through, is part of God's word. It is inspired, it is inerrant, and it is profitable. Uh, God wants you to understand his word. He wants it to be preached even here this morning. But not only is it inspired, inerrant, and profitable, it might also prove to be uh, surprising. Sometimes, as many of us know, uh, the strangest looking seeds can produce the prettiest flowers. And if you go around and take a look at uh, cities with sculpture, uh, some of the most remarkable sculptures came from what? Uh, the most unremarkable stones. And so perhaps this might prove to be the case today with Nehemiah chapter 7. I want you to look at particular verses along the way, and now particularly Nehemiah 7 at verse 5. And in many ways, uh, this gets at the heart of the chapter. Then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book, The Genealogy of Those Who Came Up at the First, and I found written in it, and he goes on. God put something into Nehemiah's heart. And it might be tempting to sort of run past that rather quickly and, and move on to the next part, but we're not going to do that. We're actually going to slow down and uh, think about it. God is at work in the heart of Nehemiah. That's the reason why we have the book. God is at work in the heart of Nehemiah, and that's why he goes and he finds uh, this book that contains the genealogy of the people, and several things uh, should stick out. If you know your Bibles pretty well, uh, you might pause and find this a little bit curious that Nehemiah is instructed by God, that God puts it into the heart of Nehemiah to take something of a census. Why is that a little bit surprising? Well, uh, because it's not the only time in the Bible it happens, but it is the only place in the Bible where it is approved. In First Chronicles 21, 
King David did exactly the same thing. But we don't applaud it because God did not applaud it. In fact, when King David does that in 1 Chronicles 21, God condemns it. And if you look at 1 Chronicles 21.1, it says it was Satan that put it into the heart of David to produce that census. It led to a curse that came from God. It led to the death of many of the people of God. So this census in Nehemiah chapter 7, in many ways it is the opposite. It does not come from Satan, it comes from God. It is God who puts it into the heart of Nehemiah. David's census was motivated by something bad, something uh, satanic and dark. Nehemiah's census is motivated by something rather positive. It is of God, and the way it is put is rather beautiful. Notice again the language here. And God put it into my heart. All by itself, it's a lovely little phrase. And God put it into my heart. It is a greatly devotional phrase. It highlights uh, the two-way traffic between God's heart and Nehemiah's heart. It shows us that God is close to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is close to God. Nehemiah doesn't simply say, God put it into my heart. But he says, then my God put it into my heart. That little possessive pronoun there makes it very personal, very tender, very intimate. That Nehemiah does not simply say God did it, but my God did it. And it, it raises a nice little question, a little devotional question. How would you describe your relationship with God? Is he just God to you? Or uh, do the pronouns actually matter in this case? Is he my God to you? Think about uh, the way that language is used all over Scripture. Some of it uh, you know very well. Uh, They say that pronouns matter. And pronouns, in this case, aren't simply uh, vague and descriptive. Nehemiah, again, not saying uh, their God or our God or just God, but my God. And, And very often, this is the way that we actually see it worded in Scripture. Exodus 15.2, the Lord is my strength. And my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Think of how many different times throughout the Psalms, uh, the psalmist's relationship with God is personalized. The Lord is not simply a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And it makes all the difference in the world simply to say there's a shepherd out there versus there is a shepherd nearby whose heart is for me. And not only is this uh, the Old Testament way of personalizing one's relationship with God, as Nehemiah does, it's the New Testament way of doing it as well. For Paul says in Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, personally thanking his God for the church. And then again in Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Here's the point. A Christian does not simply know about God. He knows God. She knows God. And God is not simply a God to us or the God to us. Uh, He is my God and he is your God. Nehemiah also shows that such closeness to God enables him to follow God's leading closely as well. Uh, For God leads Nehemiah to stay. You might not have captured this point, but when the wall was finished, So also was the original charter given to Nehemiah. 
He'd been sent by the Babylonian king back to help the exiles complete the work of rebuilding the wall. And now in Nehemiah 6 to 7, that wall is completed. So in a certain sense, Nehemiah is done. And if he wanted to, he might at this point have gone home. Remember, he was a cupbearer to the king, a position of prominence, privilege, wealth, and status. That now he's down here in Jerusalem dealing with all the drama that comes with the rebuilding of the wall, those who resist it, and those who oppose it. So Nehemiah might have easily gone home, but there's more work to be done. And sometimes, uh, whether we recognize it or not, uh, God's leading can often defy our expectations, such as the case for Nehemiah, who now uh, finds himself uh, something of a pilgrim back in Jerusalem. But again, when you think about it, uh, how many of us now live in places we never thought we would? Quite a number of us. How many of our lives have taken turns that we could not foresee? Quite a number of us. But it also raises a question that should come with a little bit of a warning. Uh, How does God lead his people into those transitions? How does God direct our paths? Well, this is where you want to be at least a little bit careful, because not everything that the Bible describes does the Bible prescribe, and we want to be careful on this point. How does God lead his people? By his word, by his spirit, through prayer, and a multitude of counselors. Uh, But even Christians can be guilty of violating the third third commandment, Uh, that is to say, uh, taking the Lord's name in vain, uh, when they sometimes say, God told me to do this and that. Uh, Not every time somebody tells me that God told them something, do I believe it. In fact, I'm often pretty skeptical. It it can easily become the Christian cloak of self-deceit. To say that God put it into my heart, or God told me uh, to do this, that, or another thing. People tell me all the time little Christian cliches like that, and and they actually make me kind of nervous. I've been instructed recently by college kids at Christian colleges that this is actually a pickup line. God told me that we're supposed to get married. That's pretty smooth, huh? How do you argue with that? Well, maybe the best answer would be, he hasn't told me yet. But in all honesty, I have helped quite a number of people over the years uh, attempt to clean up what I would refer to as this sort of charismatic chaos where we falsely put the lips or the words of God uh, onto our lips when he might not have actually been the one saying it. In Nehemiah chapter 7, there's no confusion. Nehemiah is close to God, and God is close to Nehemiah, and that's what leads to these people being enrolled the way that they are. Now you can be thankful All I'm going to do is give you an overview. We were talking earlier about the propensity of some Puritans to preach one sermon on one verse, maybe even a couple words. Could you imagine if we did that in Nehemiah? Would you ever forgive me? Would you live long enough to find out? Well, thankfully, you're not going to have to find out. I'm just going to give an overview. And I should mention the first point in the sermon in the outline is significantly longer than the second two. So when I finally get to the end of point one, don't freak out. So how does the genealogy or this census unfold? Well, it begins with the leaders in verses 6 and 7, and it's worth putting your eyes on that. Uh, He begins by describing the leaders that came back, and if you count them up, there are 12, and that is not entirely insignificant. One of the points that is being made here, uh, subtly in the book, but intentionally in the book, is that Israel is now rebuilt. The people of God have been 
reconstituted. For my one Lord of the Rings reference for the day, the line has been remade. Like the 12 tribes that came before and the 12 apostles that will come afterwards, Israel has been regathered. Israel has been rebuilt. And in a certain sense, wholeness is the point. Shalom, peace, in many ways signals wholeness. And by describing this list with 12 leaders at the beginning, it's a way of saying what God said he would do for his people, he has done. Not only do they have their place again, we now see the people being represented in holiness. Only a couple of particulars are worth highlighting. Uh, Zerubbabel is a name that comes from a family of kings. Jeshua, uh, Greek for Jesus, descends from a family of priests. And we already know that prophets are in a midst. So not only do you have uh, this 12 representing the wholeness of Israel's leadership, you have the offets of prophet, priest, and king descending there and in the midst of the people. Regarding the priests, we'll come back to that in a little bit. Uh, the next section, verses 8 through 38, I told you we'd go fast, is a grouping of lay Israelites. But here again, uh, there's something important in the small details because all of them are recognized or grouped in one of two ways, either according to their family, these are your people, or their town of origin, this is their place. In the South, if you meet someone within the space of like three minutes, they would likely ask you one of two questions. Where are you all from? Who are your people? That's how they would say it. But people and place are the two frequent questions that you would be asked there. And it's the two questions that organize the lay people here in verses 8 through 38. In verses 39 through 42, you get a short list of priests. And again, remember how important that is for the work of the temple. And you can see what Nehemiah is doing. Uh, He's organizing according to groups that represent all that Israel needs, all that Israel was, and all that Israel is going again to be. A people and a place with God in their midst, a city with a temple in its midst, and those that are able to do the work. So this short list of priests is very important. It shows you... Uh, that God is going to continue the work of the temple and its ministry. King David had organized the priests into 24 different family groups to spread out the work. So here you see, on the one hand, an inkling of what King David did, but also a very small portion. It's like a seed group or a remnant. After that come the Levites in verses 43 through 45. And again, only a remnant of the Levites is here. After them come the temple servants. These are those who would do the menial labor of maintaining the temple and its outer structural structure, the very uh, simple uh, points of service. And similar to them are Solomon's servants who did the same thing. Uh, what the temple servants would do in the temple, Solomon's servants would do for the king's palace and his house. Uh, they, they cut the grass. Well, they didn't have lawnmowers. It's, it's just a figure of speech. But they did the menial work of maintaining the king's palace. Solomon had recruited and appointed them. And so between the two, temple servants and king servants, there are 392 for those tasks. And then comes one final group that is a little bit of a controversial group. And that uh, literally, these are those listed at the end who could not prove their origin. If asked the question, where are you all from? Who are your people? Their answer was, we're not sure. And this was tricky. 
land was inherited based upon your ability to prove either your people or your place. Many of the jobs, particularly those that were holy, depended upon your ability to prove your people and your place. Temple service, the priesthood, particularly depended upon this. And these, in verses 61 through following, could not prove where they were from. Uh, There's an implicit accusation here that they were half-breeds, that they were part Jewish, that they were part Gentile. And you might have recognized uh, one name that keeps coming back up over and over and over in the book, the name of Tobiah in verse 62. This is a little insight into that man that we looked at last week together. Now you see a little bit more of his angle. Uh, He's likely a half-breed, part descent from the Jews, part descent from the local Gentiles in the land, which explain his, on the one hand, ambivalence to the work of rebuilding the wall, and at the same time, his ability to have power on either side. He was literally playing for both sides. This group of people in verses 61 and following, would be excluded from the holy work related to the temple. They could not be priests. They could not do that which was most holy. And they could not do it until a priest arose that could manage the Urim and Thummim. Now, if you're wondering what that is, uh, my answer is I I barely have an idea. It it would almost seem like casting lots, like rolling dice. Uh, It was some form of discerning God's will and resolving controversies that seems to have faded away uh, quite a while ago, even in the time of the Bible itself. But the point is, until such a priest that could do Urim and Thummim arose, those that could not prove their ancestry could not enter the temple for holy work. So what does the summary of all this reveal? I know this has been like drinking from a fire hydrant. But what does the summary of all this reveal? It reveals that Israel is back. That God who promised to Abraham a people, a place, and a particular descendant, that God is not only the giver of covenant promises, God is the keeper of covenant promises. God promised Israel that for her sins she would go away into exile, and because of his grace she would be restored. Here is Israel back in the land with all the major categories of people well represented. Israel is small. They are, at this time, as verse 4 of the chapter points out, a little people in a big place. But God had given the gift of his people just as he promised he would do. And that takes us to our next point, God's gift through his people. The next section reveals it was not just God's, excuse me, Nehemiah's heart that God was working in. In fact, it's sort of a beautiful little touch. If the first section begins by telling us how God was at work in the heart of Nehemiah, now we see God at work in the heart of the people. First comes a numeric summary, the total of the people that came back from exile, 42,360. Compare this to the sand on the seashore, and you get the point. Uh, They're back, but they're small. But then comes a summary of their possessions, and you get the sense that they did not come back empty-handed. They have singers. They have servants, male and female. They have horses, mules, camels, donkeys. They have gold and silver. They have priestly garments to give away. And and there is something here that's very intentional, very helpful for us to understand. Israel has not come back broke. They did not return from exile empty-handed. And as the city walls are completed, Israel has much to celebrate. God has given them a place, but he's also given them abundant possessions. They went away poor, and they came back rich. 
Nehemiah himself, as we learned two chapters ago, was a wealthy man, but apparently many of the returned exiles had now also become wealthy as well. They were once, once empty, but God has made them full. God had not only given to his people, but now having blessed them and giving to them, he's at work giving through them. And that's what we see in verses 70 through 72. This interesting phrase is used regarding the heads of houses and all that they gave. Uh, Detail is given, the size of the houses and what it is that they gave. Some gave to the work of rebuilding the wall. Some gave to the work of the temple and its ministry. Some gave into the temple treasury. And among the things that they gave were derricks of gold, large sums of gold, priestly garments, which were expensive uh, clothing, silver. And then uh, having given the list of what was given by one set of households, uh, it's repeated again. And there's something going on here. On the one hand, it's like saying that some gave uh, to the past and some gave to the future. Even by those who put into the treasury, they were investing into the future of Israel's ministry. And then the giving of the people is finally included. And what does this tell us? Again, that they were wealthy, but that the people as a whole were matched in wealth by those that were the wealthy and elite. The wealthy were able to match the giving of the not so wealthy. Israel was once again rich. Rich enough to have social and economic distinctions. Rich because God had truly blessed Israel just as he said that they would. When you think about it, when they thought about it, everything that they had in their pockets came from whom? God. Everything that you have in your pockets comes from whom? From God. And that is the point. They were blessed. Freely they had received. Freely now we find them giving. Once again, we see here the paradigm of Christian generosity. As God blesses and prospers us, uh, we freely and generously give to the work of his ministry. 1 Corinthians 16 uses this language there that the church in Corinth gave according to their ability. And then in 2 Corinthians, the same church gives not only according to their ability, but even above and beyond. That is something of what is happening here in the book of Nehemiah. Israel knew that they had once been an exiled people. Those who came back and were again living in the land, restored not only to their property, uh, but in many ways uh, to a pride that came with position. They knew the joy of restoration, and they were thankful. And so what did they do? What do thankful people do? They give thankfully, and they give generously. Back from exile, back from slavery, back from poverty. They had come home. They had once more experienced a virtual exodus. In many ways, the exile back from Babylon uh, was like coming again from Egypt. But it wasn't simply like uh, experiencing something that they had tasted in the past. One might also say that again Israel has tasted of the powers of the age to come. They were dead in exile. And now they are alive again. And not only alive, they are abundantly blessed so that they might abundantly give as expressions of thanksgiving and celebration. Hearts that have been touched by the grace of God kind of can't help but be this way. Cannot help but want to give, want to participate in the work of God, in the ministry of God. So when God gives to his people, he also gives through his people And this leads to our final point. God's gift to his people coming home. 
I want you to think about for a moment as we start to approach or try to find our runway. Uh, what is the great gift that God gives to his people in Nehemiah chapter 7? Is it that they are alive? Well, there's something to that. Is it that they are back from Israel? There is something to that. Is it the abundance of possessions that they have? There's something to that. Is it that they have their temple and their city back? Well, there's something to that as well. But in a certain sense, the greatest gift that God has to give to his people uh, is not in what he has already done, but in many ways found in what he is yet to do. Our text ends with what you could describe of something of a fairy book ending, a fairy tale ending. Notice verse 73. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. You could almost imagine that could be the end of the book. Maybe you're hoping it would be the end of the book. But there is a sense in which uh, Nehemiah chapter 7 finishes with, with what feels to be something like a fairy tale ending. Israel has come home. The city walls are rebuilt. The temple itself has been rebuilt. All seems to be well. Israel, by the seventh month, has come home. And the people of Israel are in their towns. But is everything well? Is everything whole? Is everything done? To rephrase the question, are the people of God truly at home? Are the people of God, the Israel God, in Nehemiah chapter 7, are they truly at home? Well, the answer, in a very profound sense, is no. You see it in a lot of ways. Nehemiah 7 is not the end of the book. Nehemiah 8 uh, begins a whole nother set of problems and challenges before the people of God. The same Nehemiah that goes back and finds this long list that we read in Ezra chapter 2. He finds something else when he's looking. He finds the law, the word of God. And in the next chapter, it's time to bring the heat. Or as next week's sermon title is given, light and heat. But the people of God, just as in Nehemiah 7, <clears throat> so also with us, are never truly at home in this world. And I, and I want to make this point, attempt to make it well. The people of God are always a pilgrim people passing through. This is seen by looking back. So look back with me for a moment. Uh, on the one hand, you might stop and celebrate. 42,360 people have returned. And you could say, well, that's great. All the categories of Israel's people are there and populated. And that too, we could rejoice in. But 42,360 people is a small remnant of what Israel formerly was and what Israel will again be. It is a tiny drop in the bucket of what the people of God actually are. It really is a strange seed of hopeful things, of beautiful things, that are yet to come. And not simply the people, but think also about the things that now by Nehemiah 7 have been rebuilt. The city walls and the temple itself. The temple now once again stands, but it too is only a tiny glimmer of former glory. So much so 
That a few chapters earlier, we learned that when older men and women saw the completion of the temple, while others stood uh, loudly applauding and celebrating, those that were old enough to remember what it once looked like also stood there making a great noise of weeping. Because this temple is nothing in comparison to the former temple and its former glory. And what now of these walls? The city walls that form uh, the center point and work of the book of Nehemiah. Well, it too, even the wall of this city, is nothing that it formerly was. But perhaps even more importantly, this wall that now stands in Nehemiah 7, this wall that is completed with its gates and bars and doors now shut, will once again be toppled, will once again be penetrated, it will once again be destroyed. Nehemiah chapter 7 ends with a little bit of a celebration, but history has a way of repeating it. As has been said by many, those who forget it often have the unfortunate circumstance of proving that point and repeating it over again. Many of us have learned what the Bible teaches, not simply here, but elsewhere, perhaps famously in Hebrews 11 and 12, that here we have no continuing city, but we seek the city that is to come. God in his kind providence put it into the heart of Nehemiah to rebuild the city, put it into the heart of Nehemiah to renumber the people. But in the heart of God, there is a far greater city and a far greater people that are yet to be formed. Here we have no continuing city. Many of us know this from life. I was almost 40 years old before I lived in the same house for more than four and a half years. Some of you in this room were born in one country and will quite likely die in a different country. And all of us, all of us, are called to learn that no matter where we live, even in beautiful, sunny Southern California, where the weather is almost exhaustingly perfect, even here, beloved, you are pilgrims. You are strangers passing through just like Israel. And here you have no continuing city. We are pilgrims. But does that mean, beloved, that we don't have a city, a people, or a place? Are we without a city? Are we without a people? Are we without a place? This is where the gospel sweetly comes in. Because God sent his son, if you will, from that heavenly city. And the Son of God came into the world where here he himself found no lasting city. In fact, he said, uh, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere even to lay his head. No place here in this world that he might truly call home. When Jesus came into the world, beloved, he never looked around and said, you know what? This is it. And I'm here to stay. Not even for a moment did he ever think it doesn't get any better than this. In fact, he saw all that was decaying, all that was perishing, and he knew that here he had no continuing city, but he himself was one who was also seeking that city that was yet to come. But unlike those who simply seek it, Jesus had the ability to bring it. And that's what he did. And the way that he did it was by not only leaving that city, but coming to an earthly Jerusalem only to be driven out of that city and there crucified as one who was unholy. The great irony, 
He who is the prophet, priest, and king of Israel. He who is the rightful son of God and inheritor of all things. He who is holy, holy, holy in all of his being was cast out, if you will, exiled like those in Nehemiah chapter 7 who were deemed unholy, who were declared unfit. And even as he was crucified, the very apex of his alienation from this world, is it not ironic that from his lips should be found the very same words that we hear on Nehemiah's, my God. The God who drew near to his people, the God who drew near to Nehemiah, is also the one to whom the father, excuse me, the son cries out, my God, my God. But in that case, not why are you so close to me, but why are you so far? Why am I so far from home, so far from my people, so far from my place? It was that you, beloved, would become his people and have a share in his place. That we too could say that the creator of heaven and earth is not simply a God or the God or their God, but my God and our God. And so the the words of the son from the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me, would never become the lot of the people of God, but the exact opposite, the Lord's promise that he will never leave nor forsake his people. And that we who hear while wandering around, sometimes a little bit lost, sometimes a little bit unsure, not always knowing exactly where it is we belong, might be able to say, because the word of God says to us, even from a strange chapter, like Nehemiah 7, you have a people. And you have a place. This is God's gift to you. He gives to you a people and a place because he foremost gives to you himself. And because of that, even if you don't have a great question or answer to the question, where are y'all from? Who's your people? You can actually say that you do indeed belong to a people. And they're called the church. And the people to whom you belong are seated all around you, motley crew as they are. And you belong to a place, not a zip code in Southern California or some other part of this country or even some other part of some other country far, far away. You belong to that heavenly Jerusalem above. And like the people of God, you have much to be thankful for and much to celebrate for even more than Israel's exile and their being returned, even more than Israel's exodus and being brought up, you have been delivered from sin, death, and bondage through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the people had reasons to be thankful, to give, and to celebrate in Nehemiah 7, how much more do you? How much more do you? God has given to you Great gifts. And so God continues to give through you great gifts, all to the cause of building his church, that he might receive glory and honor. And he gives you one last gift from Revelation 3. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Your ancestry is not in question, because you are united to Christ. Never shall he go out of it, You belong to a place, and you'll stay there for more than five years. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God. Notice not just the city of God, but the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. 
This is your people. This is your place. This is your God. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we thank you for the Herculean task of pronunciation and perseverance that comes to us by way of Nehemiah 7. For from this strange seed, a beautiful flower brought blossoms. From this unshapely stone, a glorious structure has been made. And it is the church. That church that you knew from all eternity past and loved with an everlasting love. That church of whom you drew word pictures in history when you brought Israel out of Egypt. When you brought Israel again out of exile. When you settled them in a home and gave them home after home after home. But all this we recognize the Lord was like a breadcrumb trail leading forward to the Son of God coming in to this world, having left his people and his place, coming to rescue a people that they might have a place together with him. What a remarkable work. What a remarkable gift do we have in the coming of the Son of God. And Lord, you know how many of us struggle with life in this world, uh, not because you have been uncharitable or less than generous to us, But because the reality is we know that this world is not our home, although we keep trying to make it our everlasting city and inheritance. But the words of Hebrews are true. Here we have no continuing city, for we seek the city that is yet to come, whose builder and maker is God. And so we ask, Lord, that more and more you lift up our eyes that we would see our great hope, our great calling of all that we have together in Christ. And as we open our eyes, help us to look around this room with love and affection for one another. For here we truly have a people, and because of Christ, we also have a place. And so we pray with thankfulness in his name. Amen.